You are not the measure. It's not up to you. Sin resides in you, and there's nothing you can do about it. But you reside in Jesus, because he has chosen you. And so again, you are not the measure Jesus is. There's nothing you can do about your sin, but Jesus has. It's not up to you now, it's up to him. And that is what Paul is at pains in the whole book of Romans to give you as a foundation for believing that you are no longer under the law. That's his language. We'll talk about the law as his language a lot today. You are no longer under the law, but you are under grace. That is, as Lutherans like to say, you're under the gospel. And remember that way back in chapter 1 of Romans, the gospel was defined very clearly as two things. One, there is a son of David. There is a king who is descended from the lineage of David. And two, death can't contain him. He's risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Death could not contain him. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, though Christ has died... Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And this changes your relationship with God. Formerly, you were under a tyrant called sin. Again, we'll talk about that more. But this tyrant of sin, you could say it's the devil, but it's not like blame the other guy. It's inside of you. This tyrant of sin takes even the best things that God gives you and uses them in evil ways. So even the law, which is good, is used by your sin to condemn and kill you. And Romans 7 is going to be going into that in detail. So we're going to have a lot of that talk today. But again, to express to you that that does not mean you're not in Christ. Rather, this is what the Christian gets to see. The Christian gets to see that the law is not the answer. The Christian gets to see that more of me is not the answer. The Christian gets to see that getting better is a lie. A lie which ultimately breaks my conscience in one of two ways. It either makes me proud or it makes me despair. And so again, you have now a new tyrant, not a tyrant, but a good king who has purchased you off of the slave block from that tyrant of your sin, even though it still looks like you belong to sin, you no longer do. In fact, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's where we're going to start. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. It's from last week. I want to look at it again. Romans 6, 11. It's on page 943 of your pew Bible. You have to kind of scoot around to find it there. We also sang it a bunch in the liturgy during this Easter season with that marvelous uh, New Testament canticle from the service of prayer and preaching. Romans 6, 11, So you also must consider yourself dead to sin. That doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. It means when you see the sin, you consider it dead. No matter how bad it is, no matter how deep it feels, no matter what it convinces you that you are or aren't or ought to be, 
As a Christian, the gospel means you must consider yourself dead to it. You're alive in Jesus now. And though some will say that that must mean Christians can do whatever they want, Paul's already said it, and he'll say again, that's a stupid thing to say. That denies that the law is good. The Christian doesn't say the law is not good. The Christian just realizes it's not the measure. I'm not the measure. You're not the measure. Jesus is now. So look at verse 14 now. Just a few verses later. Again, we looked at this last week. For sin will have no dominion over you. That means sin's not your king. It doesn't mean you never experience it. It means it's not your authority anymore. The evil that you find close at hand, even within your own heart, is no longer in charge of you, even though you still do wrestle with it, find it, and sometimes fail in the midst of it. It's not in charge. You're not under the law, which would point that out to you. You're under grace, which means Christ has you now. You belong to him. And he's going to see you through this. As Paul says, I believe to Titus, I am certain that he who has begun this good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. But now the beginning of this good work, the deposit of the Holy Spirit that is within you, convicts you of your sin. It doesn't make it go away. It makes you see it for what it is. And again, Romans 7 is going to be about that inner battle, a cosmic battle between light and darkness in the very heart of your soul. All right, let's look at the last verse of chapter 6, verse 23, where he says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pretty straightforward. And into 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long only as he Lives. Now, here's part of his argument. When you read Paul, sometimes he's going to speak in a way that a child can understand. Sometimes he's going to speak like a Pharisee. Not meaning he is a Pharisee any longer, but like one who knows that the Scriptures, the knowledge of God, is, is shallow enough for an infant to play in and yet it's deep enough to drown even the wisest man and get over your head really fast. And so that's kind of what this might feel like here for a moment. As he says, like, look, you are no longer under sin, you're under grace. Look, the wages of sin is death, but you've been given eternal life. Don't you know that once you die, it's no longer, you're no longer accountable to the law? And you're like, why is he saying this? Well, he's just said back in chapter 6, you've been buried with Christ in baptism, that you're dead. You must consider yourself dead to sin. And now he's going to prove that since you're dead, the law can't touch you anymore by pointing out how the law does end after a person dies. He's got to keep going here to see it, though. Because it says in verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. I mean, everybody knows that. I don't even have to be a Jew to know that. But it's there in the Jewish law that marriage is, and we do it when we do the marriage, right? Marriage is until death do us part, right? And so see, the law only holds you till you die. Oh, but since you've died in Christ, then guess what? You're no longer under the law. And someone's like, yeah, but I'm still alive. Like, no, you're not listening. I mean, you're alive in Christ, 
But you're dead in God's sight to your sin. And so again, Christianity is beginning to like realize that. Oh, I'm free? Yeah, you're free. Well, what now? Well, I mean, live. Live well. Live good. Huh. You'll find, again, as you go and try to live well, live good, you'll grab the law and kill yourself with it again. And again, then this is how we keep coming week in, week out to confess our sins, to be forgiven, and be reminded that he has us. To be chosen by him again and again through the practice of the Lord's Supper. And that'll come up again here in a moment. So again, verse 3 then, he's continuing this idea of just proving that the law is binding while you're alive. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. And this, that's the Jewish law. And a divorce is not really an option, even though it kind of is. And don't get me wrong, we have members here who have been divorced, and you know that it wasn't pleasant. You know it wasn't good. Huh? You repent of this, and now you're where you are, and you live under grace there too. But that doesn't mean that the divorce was good, right? And that's kind of his point here. But if your husband dies, you're free entirely. There's no boundment on your conscience. When your husband dies, you can get married again. I know some people are like, well, I love him anyway. and I, my, my dead husband, I want to stay single. Well, you can do that too. <laughs> it's not a law you have to get remarried. Um, although, well, Paul does say something about that if you're younger in a different book. In any case, if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. The whole point here, again, is the law only lasts until you die. And he's told you again and again, you're dead in Christ already. So now, as good as the law is, you shall not murder. That's a good rule. It's a real good rule. As good as that law is, you're not under it anymore in God's sight. Your conscience no, later, no longer needs to be accused by it. It will be, but it doesn't have to be. You can speak to your conscience different words now, like, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Through the body of Christ. I mentioned the Lord's Supper a moment ago. Whenever you see the body of Jesus Christ in Paul or Peter or John, don't assume this is only referring to the body ascended into heaven or when he walked around on earth a long time ago. Nor only assume that he's referring to the church on earth, the people who are the body of Jesus Christ. But see where that all cosmically comes to one place, in the flesh and blood that you eat and drink underneath bread and wine. Huh? So read this verse again and think about it with that in mind. You also have died to the law through the New Testament in his body and blood, given for you to eat and drink. So that, he goes on, you may belong to another... To him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Hmm? So, the body of Jesus Christ, the New Testament is blood, holy baptism, all of these come so that you may belong to another, that is to Jesus. And notice the overlap of the marriage concept here, too. That in marriage you belong to each other, now you have been wed permanently to Jesus Christ as your King, Lord, Master, God, all these things. You belong to him in order that you might bear fruit. As we say every week at the start of the service, the fruit of lips that, you got it yet? Confess, Confess his name. Yes? Everyone wants to jump straight to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And those are good things too. The fruit of the Spirit is indeed... 
to think on mercy rather than sacrifice, to understand the value of love for another as opposed to demanding justice. Yeah? But all of this again begins with having lips that acknowledge the king for who he is. Yeah? Somebody testify? Amen. Amen. That's right. That's right. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Okay, he's going to use this word law a lot. And it's gonna, he's going to play fast and loose with it. But I want to redefine it here one more time. We did this way back in chapter 2. There's two primary ways he's using the word law to start. He's going to introduce a new one by the end of this chapter. But the two ways that have already shown up are, it means the Old Testament. Right? The, the five books of Moses. That doesn't mean that there's no gospel in the Old Testament. It just means you can call the Old Testament the Torah. That's Hebrew for the law. Right? And what he means there is the revelation of God's will, period. Law and gospel. Huh? But it can also mean more narrowly his will for your life as something you're supposed to do. That is, how were humans created to be? Were we created to murder each other? The answer is no. So the law shows us what we were to be. Were we to be faithless to each other even though we made commitments for life? No, we were not to be that, right? So the law is both the history of Jesus in the Old Testament, and it is also the will of God for us in terms of our behavior. He's going to play, again, a little fast and loose with this, so that at various times in this chapter, he'll mean one and then the other. And then also, he's going to introduce some new law at the end of this here. So let's see if we can piece it together as we go. So in verse 5 again, it says our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Okay, well that one is probably not just all the Old Testament history. That one is the idea that God says, you shall not. And whenever you run into that, rather than being like, oh yeah, that's great, I won't. Your natural flesh tends to be like, why not? If that is human Human nature's first step is that any kind of rule becomes something we try to find a way around. I remember, um, it's been a while since I, I taught a youth group. Um, not a fan of youth group as a concept. We can talk about that sometime if you want to privately. But I used to be a youth pastor. And so what I did was I, I taught the youth. It was the main thing I did. And whenever you would bring up adultery, right, sex outside of marriage, this question would always come up. Well, well, Pastor, how far is too far? And I would try, I mean, they're, they're kids, so they don't really think all the time, at least. But I would try to get them to think, hey, do you realize that's the wrong question? How far is too far? How much evil is, is too much evil? How close can I get to evil and have it still be okay? Because I kind of want to, right? It's the wrong way of looking at it. We have a natural tendency to want to get around the law. We want to make excuses. We want to have it our way. And so, again, that is, as he says here, the law itself arousing our passions in us. He's going to talk about how covetousness does this in a moment, so I'm going to leave it. We'll come back to that thought. But first, verse 6, but now we are released from the law. 
We are released from the command to be good enough for God. Having died to that which held us captive, the devil and sin, we've talked about that enough already, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the way of the written code. Now, I'm going to read something to you. If you want to turn to it, you can. That bit about spirit and written code has a bigger section in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Feel free to turn there to follow along if you want. Page 965. We're going to be coming right back. I'm just going to read it through. What does he mean, spirit and code? But why is he talking that way? Again, here he's going to get a little more clear on this. We did this. Uh, we did this a couple weeks ago, too, so this hopefully is kind of coming back and being a little more familiar. I'm just going to read chapter 3, verse 1. Um, uh, well, we'll start at verse 2. He says to the Corinthian church, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, think Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, if that ministry will not that minute, excuse me, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in a ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, that's Jesus, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. From one degree of glory to another, from the letter to the spirit, from do this to it's been done. And although someone will say, but if you don't say do this, no one will ever do good things. Paul says, "Uh, -uh. it's been done changes your life. It makes you a different man. You can harness the old man with a bunch of rules and kind of shackle him into being not so bad, at least externally, but he just becomes worse internally. 
But the new man is alive forever in righteousness, bursting forth with the desire to do good. Now again, is that all that you ever get to experience? No. But do you get to experience that new man? Yes. You get to desire to do good just because it's good and not because you're going to get something out of it. And that's kind of the key there. Now he's going to go back into this highfalutin talk about the law in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Right? I mean, if, if all the law does is kill me, if all the law does is expose my sin, does that make the law bad? That's his question. He says, by no means. But if I, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law is not sin, but because of our sin being what it is, the law exposes our sin. And he's going to say in a moment, that's why God gave the law. It wasn't so you could live forever. It was to expose your sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I think to some extent you can, you can uh, expand this to any of the laws of the Ten Commandments, but the coveting one works really, really well as an example. Nobody really knows it's wrong to be greedy until you tell them it's wrong to be greedy. They know it's wrong when other people are greedy. They know it's wrong when someone does something to them, but they don't see it for themselves. We measure, this is why it's good to not be the measure. Is because when we measure by ourselves, we change the measurement based on who we're talking about. I always get a little more grace in my measurement of me than I give to everybody else. And I can't figure out why everybody else won't give me more grace and they keep thinking it's about them. We just can't see it. The veil's over the heart again, right? But so the law comes and says, you shall not. And you're like, well, wait, I do. And just like that, you've learned something, which is that not, you're going to be good, but... You're not as good as you think you are. And again, if you're going to go to the doctor, you've got to know you're sick. If you're going to have a savior, you've got to be saved from something. And the law has come to show us what that thing is. So that verse 8, this is a really key verse. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. This is like one of the most unbelievable things that he says. He's going to say it again in a different way, but the idea is just, it's unbelievable. It's that the law actually makes you worse. It doesn't make you better, it makes you worse. You might say, well, I know a guy who got his life together and he's doing great now. Yeah, but he's proud, isn't he? He thinks he's the fine without God now, doesn't he? That the point is that the law, if you use it to prove yourself, and you do actually prove yourself, leaves you a self-justified sinner, which is the worst kind to be. On the other side, you come and you try to keep the law, and you find that you can't, you end up spiraling down into like a navel-gazing upsetness and despair over your inability to be good enough. The law aggravates the sin. It makes it worse. And even to such a level, that you know this because you've run into someone who's always judging other people based on how they live. They're called legalists, right? And they have a bunch of rules and you don't keep them quite the same way. And so even though they're really nice to you, you know they're looking down their nose at you. That is the pride again, right? The law makes your sin 
worse. Now, just because some idiot on the internet is going to say I said something differently, does that mean you're supposed to do evil things? No, it's not his point. His point is just that you would not trust your not doing evil when you try to figure out how you're going to stand before God. And would you find that you feel like you don't stand before God, that your identity isn't good enough, that you would not look to yourself but look to Christ, knowing with certainty that he is your identity. Verse 9, same idea. For I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So that, verse 10, I think this is one of the most important verses in the chapter. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So he doesn't say that the Old Testament covenant didn't promise life. If you're a Christian, you read your Bible like I ask you to. You're going to come to stuff in the Old Testament that says, well, it says right here, do this and you will live. Yep, it says that. That very commandment that promises you life. And guess what it does? It kills you. Because you don't do it. All these things I've done from my youth. Oh, yeah? You lack one thing. Sell what you have, give it to the poor. Oh, I can't do that. The commandment that promises life kills you. And not knowing that is what Judaism is. Which is why when Christians or those who claim to be Christians don't know that, it's a very sad thing. It's a sad thing to see Christians who say they're under the law. You say you have to keep the Sabbath and the dietary rules of the Old Testament or all these different kinds of things. It's a very sad thing. The very commandment that promises life will kill you. So don't put your trust in commandments. Put your trust in the promises of Jesus. He is risen. He is risen. Hallelujah. So verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and killed me. And so this is important, too. The, the commandment you will use to trick yourself. What you're supposed to do in order to be good enough, you will use to lie to yourself. And this isn't because the commandment's bad. Again, the idea here is the commandment's good, but your sin, your nature, you've inherited from Adam. It's so bad that even that good thing that God gave that promises life and it's just about what is good, it actually, you'll use it to like deceive yourself. So you can feel good about yourself apart from Jesus. That's the threat here. So then, verse 12, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's, He's defending his position against anyone who would say that you don't love the law or need the law or the law is bad or any of that kind of stuff. He says, no, you're wrong. Imagining a life according to the Ten Commandments gives you such a beautiful picture. It's so good and righteous and true. And I will even tell you, one of the the best law gospel moves you can make with your heart is to start seeing the Ten Commandments not only as what you should do now, they are that, but also as what you know you will do in the life of the world to come. When Jesus comes back and you're raised from the dead, you will have no other gods. You won't even be tempted to. You won't think about it once. You will call upon God's name in prayer and praise and give thanks all the time, just because. You'll not just kind of have to go to church on Sunday. Every day will be Sunday in this land of milk and honey. You're going to call upon God's word and desire it, just like the third commandment says. Fourth commandment, 
The 12 apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones. There's orders of power in paradise, and not all of us are going to be everything. Some's going to be a doorkeeper. Someone's going to be over here. I hope to, I don't know, grow avocados, although more and more now I think I want to make pizza. I do. Um, but in any case, somewhere over me will be someone. And never will I be like, oh, he's such a bad boss, or oh, why does he have to be in charge this way, or oh, the politics, can you stand the politics in New Jerusalem? Goodness gracious. Like, all that's gone. It's going to be like, long live the king, long live his servants, may they rule over us forever and ever. Amen, amen, it's great, have some peace. Never going to kill anybody, not even that. I'll be so concerned about your body that I won't charge you for the pizza. Because I care about you. You'll care about me. And marriage is an interesting thing because we will not be given in marriage in the life of the world to come. Jesus says that very clearly and then doesn't bother to explain what he means. So we kind of have a mystery there. But certainly the commitment to each other won't be until death do us part because there will be no death. There will only be commitment to each other. Fidelity will be all we know with everyone, brother, sister, and on. Yes? And then in this, I already mentioned sharing for the sake of your body, but again, stealing won't be a thought. You'll have bounty, and your bounty will be there to give. And we will give and give and give and all rejoice together in that, as we even say, doesn't that guy do a great job? We'll protect his name rather than lie about him. Yes, and from the result of all of these Ten Commandments being the promises of eternal life, we will dwell in everlasting blessedness. That is, you will never covet. That is, you will never be discontent because you're going to be happy. You see, the law is good. It's good. But sin seizes it and uses it to make you try to prove yourself and then you die. You crush your heart. But the law is good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? No. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. From this use of the good law to crush your conscience, you can see just how bad you are. You can see just what Jesus has saved you from. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, that is, it's true, it's heavenly, it's perfect, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So your faith is spiritual, but your life in the flesh still is sold under sin. And now we get into the experience of it, which isn't victorious living. It isn't the overcoming of all things. It isn't the leaving behind of sin so that it never taunts you again. For, verse 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing that I hate. Now, all Lutherans who have come through that verse know what it means. And most Lutherans who have been in Lutheranism long enough love these verses. Because it's like, oh yeah, I do not do the thing that I want. That explains it. <laughs> now, that's why my sin is the way it is. But what I want to make you aware of now is there's a whole swath of Protestant Christianity that thinks that doesn't apply to Christians. That's about non-Christians who don't do what they want and they're still stuck in their sin. And Paul says, I, 
Not because Paul's actually confessing his sin to you, which is what he's doing. But they say, Paul says, I, because he's imagining what it would be like to not be a Christian to show you what it's like to not be a Christian. Now, fit that into the argument of the book, and, and I'll, I'll follow you forever. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. But I want you to be aware that that's out there. You've got whole segments, including of the Reformed, that is Calvinist churches, not all Calvinists. You can't. Calvinists is like herding cats. One says this, one says that. But uh, there's whole swaths of the Calvinist church to say, nope, this is not about you. And I want to just emphasize, yes, it is. Paul is sharing with you his own personal experience as an apostle who has had exceeding visions from Jesus about glory. He's been caught up to the third heaven. He knows where he's going. Jesus talks to him in his dreams, and yet there are thorns in his flesh. He says, Jesus, take away the thorns. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, grace alone, my son. And so the good that he wants to do, nope, not always what he gets done. I mean, you want a story about it? Just think about Mark. Mark and Barnabas. Paul wasn't exactly stellar in that one. So again, the good that I want to do, my own actions, I do the things I hate. You find that you're at war in your soul. And your mind's like, this is good, I should do this. And then you're like, but I don't want to. Well, what's going on there? Well, you have, you have two wills. That's what's going on there. You got the Holy Spirit working in you. And then you got yourself. Now, who are you really? Ah, well, let's keep going. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Okay, so again, the law is good. That's not the problem. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. There's so many reasons why this is not about non-Christians. Like, so you're saying that non-Christians aren't really accused by the law? No, he's not saying that at all. What he's saying, again, is that when you as a Christian find that you have done sin, not only felt it, but that's going to happen too, you're tempted to it, but when you have actually failed in it, you can know that it wasn't really you. It was the you that died in Christ. It was the you that you inherited from your father according to the flesh, but it wasn't you who's going to live forever. So am I saying there's two yous? Yes. Do you get to like go back and forth between them? No. Don't think of it as being separate. Think of it as being one. Or here's another way to think about it. It's kind of like you're sick. When you get sick, a virus, what's tearing your body apart? Your body. The virus comes in and it starts using your own cells against you. Just like that. Only now again, your cells have been put into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And so when you find that the virus is in you, you can know that that's the virus, that's sin in you. You're not going to get rid of it, but it's no longer you. You truly are a child of God now. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, in the language here, doesn't mean... Um, uh, that Christianity doesn't dwell in you. The Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in you. No, no, those things dwell in you. But what you've inherited from Adam, it's all flesh, it's all sin, it's all going, going to hell. But you're not, you're not. And now he explains what this experience is like. For I have the desire to do what is right. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, 
But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Again, sin resides in you, but you reside in Jesus. The Christian walk is the experience of this that's salvation. People who aren't saved don't experience this. They're not worried about what they do in terms of like, am I forgiven or not? They don't think about that. They're not trying to please God. They're trying to please themselves. Huh? And so again, you have sin dwelling in you, know it. Don't be surprised by it. And certainly when you accuse yourself with it, be like, yes, but I'm in Jesus. Fight back. Fight back with the law of your mind. That's what he's going to talk about here in just a moment that you can know your baptism into Christ is greater than your birth from Adam. You can know that the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ that inhabits you as a holy temple is more powerful than the flesh and blood that is chained to sin and death. You can know that you will find a law that when you want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And that doesn't mean you don't believe. In fact, to be able to see this is to believe. Huh? I'm going to look at it again, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now remember how I say he's going to make up new meanings of the word law? So now this isn't a moral law, do this. This isn't the Old Testament. This is a law like something I find just to be real. Like the law of gravity, right? You drop an apple, it falls, right? And so I find it to be real, a law, that when I, Christian, I want to do good, I got my evil right there with me. It's always right there with me. In fact, as soon as I did some real good, I'll be like, well, no. Did I do some good there? And in fact, let me tell you on that level, the best good you do is the good you don't want to do. When you're like, I don't want to help this person, but I'm gonna. That's the best good. And then again, your sin's right there with you the whole time. You never got rid of the sin, but you didn't let it have dominion over you. Because yeah. that's the fight. Let me put it one other way before we go back to the text. The sin's never going to get out of your heart. It's going to be there till the day you die. The inside, accusing you, accusing others, talking evil, judging other people. It's always going to be there. The Christian fight is not to make it so the heart's pure. The Christian fight is to see, oh, my heart's not pure, I'm going to shut my mouth and talk more carefully. <laughs> And I'm going to be even more careful what I let my hand do. Since I tend to deceive myself. And so the word of God will be my guide and mirror in all these things. Yeah. So the distinction between the sin of your heart, the sin of your mouth, the sin of your hands is there not to save yourself, but so that you would understand again where the fight is. The fight is not to purge yourself of sin, but to not let the sin have dominion over you. And you want that fight because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Why would you not press forward toward the goal of the upward call for which Christ has called you heavenward? Even though evil will lie close at hand. Meaning, verse 22, that I, you will delight in the law of God, in my inner being. Like I just descri described paradise as being, where the law of God is what we do forever. Now, you get to delight in that. You get to dream about that. You get to pray for more of that now. But you will see, verse 23, in my members, that's in your body, in your life, another law, waging war against the law of my mind, 
and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He used the law three times, and he wasn't referring to the law that evil lies close at hand, at least not quite the same way. So let's, let's peel this back here. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. Let's start with the law of my mind. That's the gospel. The law of my mind is the truth that because Christ has chosen you and put the Holy Spirit in you, you think the thoughts of God according to the scriptures. If that word comes to you and when you believe, teach, confess, know these words, it becomes the mind of Christ actually active in you. But that law of the mind of Christ is in a war against the law of your members, right? Or as he calls it, the law of sin that dwells in my members. And that's what we've been talking about this whole time, that evil lies close at hand. And now, so this is a law that you find, that there is the law of evil lying close at hand. That's just a reality. And then there's the reality of the mind of Christ being put into you by the words of Jesus. And I find that this is what's taking place in my life. And then he says to that, well, what a wretch. Here I have the very mind of Christ, and I still want to be selfish. Who's going to save me? Oh, I love it, though. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the whole thing, you're not under the law, but under grace. That's the point. He's driving it home. But even when you find that the law has accused you and killed you, even when you find the evil within you has won, you're still under grace. That's who Jesus is. So then, I myself, this is the you who's in Jesus, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. That is, I love what God says, whatever he says. But I with my flesh serve the law of sin. I know I'm not yet physically free from this tyrannical disease that twists my heart and my mind. Look at chapter 8, verse 1, where we're going next week. There is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the whole, whole point. I have this law at work that I've got evil close at hand, no matter how good I want to be, and even when I see the law of God as good and look forward to it in paradise, I still use it to build up my pride, which ends up creating despair and just destroying me at the end of the day, and it will one day put me in the ground. But because of that, because of the God of grace who exposed that in me, I know now I'm saved. I now know I'm saved from that. It is this very perplexing and destructive internal conflict that I am saved from by the promise of Jesus. And that in him, there is now no condemnation. Zip, zilch, zero, none. As little as you would throw your own child out in the street, so would God do to you, Christian. That's the good news, yes. That's the good news. Before I close, I just want to say, again, I'm going to read it one more time, 8 verse 1. Highlight it, put a line under it, write it down. I said to the first service, tattoo it on your forehead. Wait, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. uh, but don't forget it. It's one of the best verses in the Bible. There is now no condemnation for you in Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Please rise for